For the last month, we've been uh, discussing in a, a kind of a late summer series uh, how we maximize our impact in a post-Christian culture. And we've talked about in the workplace, within friends, a circle of friendships and families. And for these next couple of weeks, we want to focus on maximizing our impact together as a community of faith at TFRC. And uh, certainly, the, I love the, the Hume Lake video because it uh, reflects the priority here. that We don't just exist to serve ourselves. Uh, we exist to change the world, in particular the Magic Valley, one life at a time, by your personal transformation and, and heart for Jesus. So we're excited to just kind of share our hearts today. Um, if you were to see us behind closed doors in an office, this is the kind of stuff we chat about pretty routinely. And I, I just really hope that you uh, hear uh, our hearts and what uh, our passion for the body of Christ and, uh, and see what, uh, what takes place as a result. We're going to read a passage to focus on first from 1 Peter 3, 8 to 15, and Cindy Collins is going to be reading it for us. Cindy, I called you Connie at the first service. I'll call you Cindy at the second. <laughs> but uh, what we do here is stand and face the middle of the room because we believe Scripture is central here to who we are and what we do as a church. Cindy, when you're ready. Thank you. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Great. Thank, thank you, Cindy. You can have a seat. This is a cross between a State of the Union address and uh, hearing the hearts of the preachers here. So uh, what we want to discuss in these two weeks, today fundamentally, primarily, we want to talk about the challenges that we feel that we're facing as a congregation, specifically at, at TFRC, let alone as American Christians. Next week, and I'm really excited about this, I think you guys are too. Right? We are. Yes, we We're going to talk about the opportunities unique to TFRC moving forward. Uh, and God has just blessed this place beyond belief, and uh, there's some really cool stuff. Uh, it was less than a year ago that uh, we sat in this room and celebrated a 40-year anniversary of TFRC. And we have only a few of those people in this room that were here that have gone the distance for 40 years. But we celebrated uh, the faith of a small group of people who believed enough in Jesus, first of all, to gather together as a faith community. They, they were committed enough to the Reformed tradition in its variety of forms to join together and try to make an impact. And they, and they bought three acres in this corner of town, which really wasn't even the corner of town. It was out in the uh, rural backwoods of the Magic Valley. 
And, and 40 years ago that happened, and we've seen God bless this place from a few dozen people to over 2,100 people that call TFRC their home, uh, to uh, around 800 children and teenagers that this place ministers to routinely, and 30 different missions, missionaries, uh, locally to globally. And so God has done amazing things through that original group of people and through many of you. And we celebrate that too today. A couple of weeks ago, we had our uh, kind of a volunteer training for children and youth ministry. I think the list had like 125 uh, volunteers just working with kids and youth here. So uh, God continues to move. But what we want to talk about, and we've kind of arm wrestled this uh, down to one fundamental issue that we feel is really impacting us at TFRC, and it's not unique to us, but uh, it's significant here, and that is, uh, using a multi-syllable word, marginalization. Uh, an easier word to understand is it's, the church is just becoming less and less relevant. It's our irrelevance. It, it, if I can boil it down to another word, it's whatever. You know, a lot of people, in fact, some of you may be saying, hey, this really doesn't scratch where I'm itching, whatever. It's the church. It's become the number one issue for us at TFRC is the growing irrelevance that the church uh, becomes. Uh, and again, it's a reflection of culture. There was a day, believe it or not, some of you remember this day, when the church was the most significant, if not the most significant social hub of the community. Rural America was dominated by churches that were the epicenter of the faith community's gatherings and relationships. And friends and families were dependent upon the church for all their social gatherings, let alone their transformation. And it just brings me to, to maybe ponder this morning as I change my voice. I throw my voice. Isn't that cool? I could do that. Uh, I want you to think about this morning all of your social circles, your family priorities, commitments, and then ask yourself, honestly, you don't have to do this aloud, where does the church fit on that list? How relevant is the church in my day-to-day -day life today? And then a follow-up question is, where was it five years ago, ten years ago? And then mark the trajectory, a dotted line that follows your commitment to the body of Christ. I'm not talking the buildings, we're talking the people, we're talking the organism called the body of Christ. Um, what matters most to us is what impacts us the most. And quite frankly, the challenge we would argue the greatest challenge is that faith to many within the body of Christ really doesn't matter that much. And so by proxy, if my faith in Jesus doesn't matter much or it matters less than before, then the church naturally is less relevant. And that's the trajectory, that's the journey, not only of TFRC, but of American Christian culture. And, and we wanna unpack that today and, uh, and, and try to get a better grasp on it as, a, as the number one challenge that we face. Yeah, and so we kind of broke down the growing irrelevance or marginalization of the church into two factors, external factors and internal factors. And we want to start with the external factors, and two external factors that we just want to briefly talk about is uh, loss of influence and cultural antagonism. And if we were just to go back 60 to 65 years, did a little research that uh, from 1952 to 1957, the Christian influence in this country accomplished three things. 
that I believe show unprecedented influence in our country. The symbolism of these three things is more significant than their substance, for sure, but they're still great illustrations of unprecedented influence of Christianity in the United States. In 1952, the United States Congress established a national day of prayer. In 1954, the United States Congress added the words, under God, to the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1956, the United States Congress changed the motto of the United States from e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. They changed it to, in God we trust. And in 1957, that phrase, that motto, in God we trust, first appeared on paper money in the United States. The influence Christianity had on American culture in the 1950s was unprecedented. And our influence has declined ever since. The 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the last 17 years. And today, that loss of influence now looks like it now means that we no longer really have a voice in the public realm. For us to believe in the superiority of Jesus to other major religions, where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, that is not acceptable in a pluralistic society. It's just not. Our moral views on marriage, divorce, living together before marriage, those views are no longer acceptable in a tolerant society. And so what we have to do is we either minimize or eliminate those parts of our faith, or we just no longer have a voice in the public realm. That's what our loss of influence means for us today. Well, and Chuck, I think, you know, this is, it's, it depends on how old you are, but the way you experience this, depending on your age, is different for all of us. It, some of us in this room actually remember the 50s and actually remember some of these things happening. It's really this high point of Christianity in the culture or something like that. <laughs> Did I say something weird? No, I'm just looking at Brian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Trying to, trying to remember. <laughs> some of us remember the 50s. <laughs> anyway, and then there's others, others of us like me um, who would be considered a millennial, and there's many of us here as well, who this was business as usual. Like, we've never seen anything different from this. These millennials. <laughs> Just remember, it's all about Source me. Source of all of our problems, you boomers. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to keep going before a fight breaks out here on stage. Because <laughs> uh, the Gen Xers will have to fix it like we always do. All right. Um, but maybe, just a thought, that maybe as Christians, we didn't lose our way in the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, but maybe it was 60 years ago at the height of our influence. Again, the passage that Cindy read included from 1 Peter 3, they must turn from evil and do good, and they must seek peace and pursue it. Or if we think about when Jesus established his mission here on earth, was the point of that to have the kind of influence that we had in our country 60 to 65 years ago? Was that Jesus' point? And again, that kind of political and cultural influence, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not bad, but it just wasn't the point. And so maybe at the height of our influence in this country, that's when we lost our way. And now that we've lost our influence, we can find our way again.
Yeah, and uh, I want to talk about cultural antagonism because this is also a, a piece of this as well. And you can really see uh, the church culturally um, is suffering from an antagonistic culture. It really is. And you can see this in a few ways. There, there was a time when the church uh, was seen as the beacon of morality and justice in our culture, right? But what we are witnessing today is that it's literally turning on its head before our eyes. Uh, the church was once the moral high ground in our culture, in our society, and now the church is viewed by many as morally bankrupt. And, and at least some of the reason for this is that truth, this thing we talk about, truth has become individualized. It's become about you, and it's become about me. What feels right to me today is now what I'm going to call true. You know, a great example of this is when I hear the, the, the phrase Packers, something happens in me. It's a deep, intense anger that erupts in me. <laughs> and, and because of this, I know that to be a Packers fan, the truth is, it's wrong to be a Packers fan. Isn't that... That is an absolutely terrible illustration. That is so off. That is awful. But sometimes, the things we feel are right, uh, the Bible just doesn't affirm. And so the church is now seen as immoral and unjust because the Bible disagrees with what many in our culture feel is true. And so the response of many is that the church is a problem in our culture today. The church is now seen as unjust and immoral. And, and when people in our culture um, see that and they believe that the church is a problem, they feel perfectly justified to purposely suppress the church and limit its power in our culture. Okay. All right, this Jump time. Um, I'm the old fart of these three. <laughs> this is the boomer, the Gen Xer, and the millennial. And I guess to me this, I don't know how you feel about this, Chuck, but what's fascinating to me is I have not changed my views, my perspectives, my uh, opinions on issues virtually at all in my adult life. And I used to consider myself progressive and kind of anti-establishment, you know, down with the man kind of person and taking these stances. But now I'm taking the same positions, whether they be um, on social issues or political issues, uh, even issues like, such as sharing my faith. And now, somehow, it's, it's like if you ever read the book, it's a management book, Who Moved My Cheese? Um, somehow my position has become the intolerant position. I'm being judgmental and uh, bigoted, and I, there's, it's like I'm in this box and I can't get out. And I don't think I've really changed my viewpoints, because I really, I always believe as an adult follower of Jesus, my perspectives are built upon God's Word, but I just, I feel, I feel marginalized mm -hmm. in a culture, and I don't know what happened. I, I do know what happened, but it, <laughs> and it took a while, but I feel that, mm -hmm. and again, I don't know if that's just a generational thing or not, but I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, I have to shut up in certain situations and scenarios because I'm the outlier. And I used to have a majority opinion. Anyway, that's kind of my angst these days. I don't know where that goes. I really don't. And I think that's just, it's a great example of cultural antagonism. Like, that's what it looks like. And there, there's a second part to this <coughs> cultural antagonism as well. Because in our culture today, institutions and people that have power are now viewed with great suspicion. If you are powerful or an institution is powerful, 
People have their eye on you in a way that they didn't even perhaps 15 years ago. We don't trust people or institutions with power. We don't trust CEOs. Uh, we don't trust politicians. Perhaps we never have. I'm not sure. Um, but we don't trust the church anymore as well. Because in our culture, anything that can tell us what to do is now inherently a bad thing. And the church has this thing called the Bible, and the Bible shows us the way that God wants us to live, and people in our culture today find that very threatening. And so our culture is inherently suspicious of this thing we call church. Now, as a disclaimer, um, some of it is because the church has not really done a great job of itself um, in many ways. The church recently has struggled with morality all over the place. There are pastors routinely these days who are busted for money laundering. It's a commonplace in our culture today. It's really not news. Um, you know, and this isn't me dinging the Catholic Church, so please don't view it that way, but the scandal of the child abuse in the Catholic Church um, today, that has affected us. You know, my wife works at Rock Creek, and when I'm over there and people know that I'm a pastor, I can feel the gaze today like I never did before. People are watching us with great suspicion these days. And so what does this antagonism look like? It looks like the privileged place we had, like in the 50s. It looks like that's going away in our society. Any biblical images or passages in public places are going away. They've been taken down. They have been for years now. Christian holidays are turning in from Christian holidays to something else, perhaps secular holidays. They're transforming really before our eyes. Our voice and beliefs as the church are being forgotten and perhaps even intentionally ignored. The church today in our culture is antagonized in a way that it really hasn't yeah. been before. You know, and I, I think, too, there's, this is an oversimplification of stereotypes, so pardon me, but I think it, you look at it generationally, too. Uh, my folks' generation respected authority for the sake of the institution or the, the voice. Um, my generation questioned authority, and we did a great job of that. And again, it, it just, the trajectory continues to now, we reject authority. Any authoritative voice, authoritative institution, we immediately, we don't just question it, we're ready to reject it. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're part of that package, I think, culturally today as, as the body of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Yet, yet, I have to wonder if in the future a church with no power, and that's really where we're headed, folks, I wonder if a church like that can actually have more impact in our culture than we ever imagined. Again, as, as we mentioned, these external factors, again, maybe, maybe what generation you come from, you feel it more or less because, again, maybe the older you are, you feel it more because you see more of the change. My generation and younger, a lot of our Christian influence had already been lost. It was, it was always on the decline, our, my entire life at least. And, um, but when it comes to the internal factors, shifting to those, when we talked about this, really what we identified, if there was a common theme with some of the internal factors of the marginalization of the church, it's this lack of us feeling responsible. You know, how easy is it to feel like the church is somebody else's responsibility? And maybe that is something that my generation and younger can relate to, not because we're a bunch of irresponsible deadbeats, um, but because it just seems like someone else is responsible. Uh, the church was something my parents were responsible for, or the church is something the pastors are responsible for, or if you are a pastor, it's something that the senior pastor or lead pastor is responsible for. Um, the church staff is responsible, or the elders and deacons, they're responsible for the church. 
Again, I grew up with more of an institutional feel of the church, much less so than a community feel of the church. But the church, by definition, is the community of people, not the institution. And so when each of us feels less responsible for the community, for the church, it makes the church less relevant to each and every one of us. And so it marginalizes the church from the inside because we just don't feel responsible for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think there's different uh, manifestations of that too. And I think one of the things, and these, it's hard to totally separate internal, external factors. I mean, they're, they're merged a little bit. But when we don't feel responsible, we, responsible, we tend to be critical. Mm -hmm. And that's just... And let's face it, we as a culture are becoming more critical. And I don't know what reality shows you watch, what primetime shows you watch, but how many shows don't vote someone off an island, someone off a stage, or someone who shouldn't be on the stage to begin with into oblivion? I mean, it's kind of what we do. We, we live as spectators, we, as observers to criticize. And, and there's, it's just a fascinating conversation because we've seen it, we've seen the impact in the church. And I want to hasten to add here, and we, we struggle with this a little bit. Uh, we don't want to come across as whiners this morning, okay? This is not unique to TFRC. This is a real issue in American Christianity and churches. Churches are being torn apart because of the rise of criticism, both of professional, vocational pastors and staff and volunteers. Um, one of the things that happened, and this is that uh, age-old evil now in our culture, is the evil of relativism. When uh, there was a day when we believed more in absolute truth than our own opinions. Now we live in a culture in which my opinion hardens into conviction, which hardens into my own absolute truth. And so not only am I holding my opinion, I'm right, you're wrong. And you know people like that too who will remain nameless today that it's not an opinion anymore, it's their truth. And if you don't agree, you're wrong. You're doomed, you're condemned, whatever it may be. I think another thing that we struggle with pastorally is, and I don't know what the cause is, we see the effect, is a growing lack of self-awareness that we're just not willing to look in the mirror and fess up to who we really are. And so as a result, um, what happens is when we're less and less healthy emotionally, uh, personally, we start looking at others um, with an elevated level of expectation. Our own is low. We don't expect much of ourselves, but boy, we expect more and more out of each other. And the tragedy of that is there's no way I can match someone else's expectation if it's unrealistic. And it's rampant in the church. We well, Brian, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you now. Yeah. That's right. Um, I, I think part of this is just the consumeristic nature of our society too, right? Like we have lots of options everywhere and we just get to choose the thing that we're going to consume. And what we've done is we've turned our crosshairs as a culture at the church. And so we look at every little piece of our worship and every piece of our Wednesday nights or whatever it may be with a very critical eye because we're looking across the street at some other place, some other community that might be doing it differently or better. So we are critical. Yeah, I, I think right on. The other thing that happens is uh, in this culture of spectating, man as a spectator, I'm quicker to critique the players. Oh. I, I uh, grew up playing basketball and referees were a necessary evil for me. And they were never right when it came to my performance or my play. 
refs, they just didn't get it from my perspective. So one day I decided for one year I'm going to referee basketball games. And arguably it was the longest year of my life because I was so lost on the court. The players were criticizing me. The fans were criticizing me. And um, I, from that moment on, more or less, I vowed I would never uh, criticize a ref. You talk to any coach of any age kid or of any team in this room, and they'll tell you what the culture of criticism is doing in, into the environment of sports. Um, and we just all think we're experts these days. And see, what's sad about this portion of the conversation is we live within a secular culture of criticism, and it's pretty typical of American culture that we reflect the secular culture more than reflect the culture of Jesus, the expectations of Jesus. And so we get sucked up in the vortex of this criticism. And so the consequence in churches today, um, and I, this is, again, I, I, we're not looking for more affirmation or more criticism either, for that matter, but we appreciate you. I have a lot of pastoral buddies that have lost their jobs in the last couple years because what used to be perceived as a weakness in a pastor's performance is now something you terminate a pastor over. Uh, we see the inner, inner uh, personal conflict between volunteers in different departments that bubbles up around here more and more often than ever before just because I've elevated my own sense of uh, worth uh, at the expense of someone else. And I, I really think we've got to, I, I just want you to reflect in your own view of people. Do I value people more than I judge people? When, my first, when I look at you for the first time, do I value what he offers or, or do I observe a shortcoming? There's no <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You, you, you understand, you can maybe grade yourself in this culture of criticism segment <laughs> on what you see in people first. And um, I would love, I would love, this is kind of next week's, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but what if TFRC became renowned in the Magic Valley because of its culture of affirmation? There's something unique about this group of people when I go there because they're so affirming. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I mean, we want to speak the truth in love. <laughs> I'm not going to use as an illustration, but you know what I'm you know you hear what I'm saying. Let's speak truth. Let's confront evil. When someone is acting clueless, let's tell them lovingly, "Hey, you're clueless." But the fact is, um, are we valuing people before we uh, criticize? Yeah. So we we don't feel responsible, so we criticize. Um, we don't feel responsible, and this also has affected our commitment, um, especially at the church level. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about this. We're the busiest society that history has probably ever seen, right? It's just true. We're really, really busy. It's something that we already know about ourselves. You know, for, for all the parents out there that just started soccer season with their kids this last week, you're getting that right now, right? We have two kids playing soccer, and my wife's coaching both of their teams. It's crazy. We are very, very busy. But, but it's not just as a society that we've gotten busier, I don't think. I don't think that that's exactly the problem. I think what has happened in our society, especially here in our church culture, is that our commitment to the rest of our lives has grown in importance, while our commitment to the church has really suffered because of that. It's lowered 
its importance and priority in our lives. You know, today the church, in many of our opinions, is just one more priority in a long list of priorities in our lives. And you know, in the past, what it used to be, it used to be that the church was the priority for the Christ follower's life. You know, think, think about it this way. In our lives right now, what, what's your social hub? You know? You know what it is? The place where all your friends reside, the place where you can hang out and you can talk shop, the place where you spend your free time. What is that social hub for you? Or hubs. Or hubs, hubs. for you. Or hubbies. I don't know. <laughs> um, Which rhymes with cubbies. <laughs> we don't want to get into that today. Oh, man. But, you know, if, in previous generations um, uh, in our church, the culture's primary social hub was the church. It was. It's where we spent our time. It's where we reconnected with friends. It's where our friends were. Um, it's where we talked shop. It's where we lived life and we worshiped God together and we tried to live out the gospel. In this community, that was our social hub. And, and most of our social activities at that point were in the church. You know, how many of you uh, remember the potluck? Anyone? We had one this summer. It was actually pretty great. Potlucks used to be normal in churches, weekly sometimes in churches, and they're gone and they are a part of the past in many ways because our commitment has gone down to this church. The church used to be a social hub and now it's just not. You know, our social hub today might be our work, right? For some of us, this is not to be offensive. This, it could be our CrossFit gym for some of us, right? It could be the bar, I don't know. Our social hub is probably not here, though, today. Um, our social hub has perhaps disappeared, actually. Perhaps for some of us, we just don't have one, and our social hub is just our family in our houses today. But you see, because we don't feel responsible for the church anymore, the church community is no longer the center of our lives anymore either. You know what, though, I, I, and again, I'm not negating what you're saying, John, but there was a day I think you're going to read about it in a little while, where it wasn't just the social hub, but the church was the transformational hub, that people were involved in the body of Christ because that's where lives changed, and they changed the world together. And, and so in some ways, to, to create a social hub without the transformation is not quite, you know, aligning with the original intent. And I think that's Again, regardless of our social hub, there's not a lot of social hubs that can be a part of transforming eternity or literally changing people's lives, personality, and character and behavior. And that's where I think maybe we even miss the mark in saying, hey, it should be a social hub like the good old days. And when in fact it was a transforming place. And that's the, still the distinctive. I mean, we can be a social hub again, but that doesn't mean people change. So I think that's, I don't want to miss that mm -hmm. point either. Well, and I think just the question is, why are we here? I mean, are we here for transformation? Is that, is that why we're doing this thing called church? And most of, the reason, most of the places we go that we call our social hub, we don't do that for transformation. We do that because it's fun or it's exciting or it's relaxing or you can pick whatever that is for you. Um, the church has to be different in some way. Um, we, so we don't feel responsible, um, and so our commitment has suffered. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I think the third, the third factor of, of when we don't feel responsible, it's just easier to write people within the community of faith to write them off. And First um, Peter 3 says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble. And when we don't feel responsible for being a part of this community, well, then those of us in this community, we just really don't need to matter. We all become more and more expendable. And so then when we have conflict, well, we don't have to remain friends. We don't have to work it out because we can simply end the relationship. And as a society, of course, we've gotten worse, not better at conflict resolution. And so it's easier to end relationships and start new ones than to work through the conflict of our current ones. We can always find another church. And if you leave, I guess we could always find other people to take your spot in this one. You see, if, it, if we just don't feel responsible for that, well, then come and go and, 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 or don't go to church at all or whatever. It just seems to matter less. But again, the passage says, be like-minded, love one another, be sympathetic, be compassionate. And in our day and age, that can sound kind of silly, quite honestly. But look, I've watched, I've watched time and time again, relationships fall apart here. Marriages, families, friendships, because in some sense, we become more and more expendable. And so when conflict comes, of course, we do our best here at TFRC to help mediate and bring resolution, but many times, even with our best efforts, with my best efforts, I simply get to watch. You know, I, 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 go ahead. Chuck, I think a great example of this is Facebook, right? What happens when there's conflict on Facebook these days among you and your friends? Yeah. Well, what we do today is we just can click the, you know, unfriend button, and then poof, they're gone. Or you could even be a little bit more sinister and keep being friends with them, but hide any posts they have. And none of us have done that before, probably. Um, but you can do that today. And, and really what that has done is it's insulated us from people that we disagree with. And so now I think in some sense we don't even have the ability to deal with conflict because right. it's just about our opinion. That's right. And then it gets to the point where we just get to watch. We get to watch marriages and families and friendships just end. Yeah, Chuck, I think too, I, there are moments when I feel I'll just speak for me. I'm flailing away mm -hmm. at this conflict resolution. It's beyond me. It's beyond my training, and it proliferates. And I mean, it's it's um, not saying everyone's in conflict here. I'm just saying the the complexity and the uh, the degree of difficulty in some of these is you know we need NASA yeah. <laughs> or or Jesus or, or the or Holy G Spirit. Or, yeah. yeah, that's right. Not in that order. <laughs> So, as uh, we talked about earlier, spiritual growth and life transformation. Again, if, if that's what we're here to be about at TFRC, well, that happens best in community, which means each and every one of us, we are all responsible to help create a place for growth and transformation because we're all part of this community. And when we lose that feeling of responsibility, as being a part of this community, when we forget or don't think that that is our role, well, then we marginalize the church from the inside. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> I find it fascinating. Um, these days we hear, and you'll read about this in a variety of formats, social platforms, etc. cetera, uh, uh, the anti-church movement, anti-church wave, uh, that again is popular, but what's ironic to me is I grew up in a, in a wave in a generation that was really anti-institutional church. So <laughs> it sounds like yada, yada, yada to me. And, and yet um, I grew up as a preacher's kid with this love-hate relationship with the church. I knew too much. And then I grew up and I still know too much. But I also captured this vision for what the church could be if we could recapture the original intent and original passion uh, and original power of the faith community of Jesus. And I'm still, uh, still, uh, it's unbelievable to me that he chose 12 kids from Galilee and then there were 120 people after three years and they were insecure and flawed like us. And that 120 expanded and they ultimately changed the world and we are actually sitting in this room as a consequence of that original group of people. Such is the power of the story and the person of Jesus. And so to me, it's about dialing back to that great commission of which every one of us is a part um, and, and understanding we're a church in mission. Hey, I know people that never cracked a Bible in their entire lives. I know people that didn't grow up in the church. We're like a mission field, a modern-day mission field. We can't afford to treat it like the church we grew up in. We're, we're a missional community. In fact, everything we do here, fundamentally, we serve as a missionary outpost, not as a maintenance station. And so, uh, collectively, next week, we're going to talk about some really cool opportunities that are unique to this church. God has a thumbprint for every congregation in the world since Jesus was here. And this thumbprint is pretty cool, I think. We'll talk about that next week. But we do that collectively. What we challenge you to do individually is go be the body and the blood of Jesus. Bring the person and the message of Jesus. Be missional. That's how we're going to maximize our impact. We'll do it collectively, but it begins with me and it begins with you. I, was just, uh, I just went to see Christy Pickett uh, Friday night. For those of you visiting, she's a member of our staff who was just diagnosed with acute leukemia three weeks ago, and she hasn't stopped taking uh, chemo yet. It's 21 days in, 21 days of chemo. I think today's her last day, but then she starts again in the near future. And Christy, is, she's a great gal. Many of you know her. But she has such a missional heart. She's our director of missions, by the way. (laughs) This past week, she wasn't feeling good, but you know what she said to me? You know what kind of opportunity? She said, I have to share my hope and my joy with people around here. And so that's her role on the fourth floor of St. Luke's downtown hospital on the oncology ward. She's sharing the good news of Jesus through her smile and through her conversation. I'm just saying, if Christy can do that on the fourth floor of the oncology ward, what holds me back from making a difference when I go to work, when I go to lunch, when I hang out with my friends? And so when we go back to who we were called to be, there has never been an institution, organism, or group of people that have made a greater impact in the history of the world than the church. And I want to be part of that. I really do. Uh, I wanted to read Acts 2, 42 through 47 for you because I really think that, biblically speaking, that is the best snapshot of what 
the church and all its originality was supposed to look like. So just, just hear these words a second. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, th this passage actually um, has been a passage that has been really kind of a, a calling of TFRC for a long time. We repeat this pa passage over and over and over again, and we do so because we believe that the Acts 2 church, what we just read, gives us a vision for what the church is supposed to be. See, a missional church, what Brian was just talking about, it's not a new initiative. I mean, maybe we need to get creative about some things, but it's not all that new. It's really a return to what the original church was and to pursue that with everything that we have. You know, the Acts 2 church is a beautiful snapshot of what the church's original calling looked like. It was a community of great devotion to each other. They devoted themselves to each other every moment of their lives. The Acts 2 Christ followers' primary commitment was to Christ and because of this to the church too. And the Acts 2 church had solidarity with each other. They had each other's backs at any moment. They supported each other and would give up anything they had to to make sure that the church's mission could stay on course. They would give up a house, a career, a savings account, whatever it took. And they made it a great priority to meet together weekly in the temple courts and in each other's homes. And God blessed the Acts 2 church like we have not seen ever again. A church that started with only dozens turned into hundreds and thousands, and eventually it spread across the entire world. It's what God does with a church like that. It's something I wish we all could have witnessed. And the reason it worked was because their unflinching devotion to Jesus you know, the thing that drove this early community was their unquestionable loyalty to their Lord Jesus and their deep appreciation for what Christ did in them, that Christ would go to a cross for them even when he was not guilty. You see, we're here today because we believe that this is what God is calling our church, TFRC, to be, folks. You know, it's a new world out there. The culture and society, it's moving at a really fast pace, and it's perhaps confusing for some of us. It's scary for others. We just don't know what the future holds. And, and you know what? We see that change in this room around us this morning. But despite the change that we see in our world, the change of our culture, which, by the way, doesn't look all that different from the culture in Acts 2, which I think is really interesting. But despite that, we believe that, the, that we have an opportunity to be a church that looks a lot like an Acts 2 church. And you know, here's the fun part. If you want to see what a TFRC modeling themselves after an Acts 2 church looks like, if you want to see that, come back next week. Because <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Let's pray. God, uh, 
we thank, we just thank you for those, um, those early TFRCers that built the framework and foundation for this community, God. And, and we thank you that you have grown this community. Your hand has been on it. Your spirit has been with us. And we've grown into what we are today. And we can only be thankful for that. And God, as we look out at the changing cultural landscape, God, we pray that your spirit be among us and not make us change, God, but to keep us on focus, to look like that Acts 2 church, to pursue you with everything we've got, no matter what, no compromise. And we do all of it because we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.